Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, yield curves. Now, I will go until about 1.20, and then you have a surprise quiz to take, so please act surprised by that. And, of course, on all quizzes, you can use your notes. <coughs> and you might want to use Excel or your calculator. You can use any of those. Or, or just a plain old calc. Wow. Oh. Well, that's going to help. Got the hiccups today. That's going to really make a really interesting lecture. Anyway, uh, before we get started, I'm always always game to have a look at the numbers, and it has it was a grim. It's been grim here, good citizens, but we'll see how it is today. I resisted the temptation. Well, what do you know? A little bit up after uh, slaughter earlier in the week. We have an up day. It's nothing spectacular, but it, as usual, you see that it's a bull market, and the least up is the Dow. It's not volatile at all. It doesn't respond to happy things or to sad things very strongly. Then the S&P 500, the Dow is up about 0.3. S&P is up 0.42. And then the small, highly volatile, higher risk securities of the NASDAQ are up the most, at almost two-thirds of a percent. Now, looking really quick, well, no, I, well, I'll do that in a minute. Crude is just plummeting in price, and it's just because there is a glut of it, and I swear it's got to translate into lower gas prices here eventually. The oil companies are always being accused of profit, uh, price gouging, profit taking, profit making. Of course, they're capitalists, but sometimes they can, they'll try to hold the price of fuels up to keep padding their bottom lines, but this is more just the, the pipelines are just swelling with oil the price uh, supply is going way up and the price of crude now i heard a glimmer uh yesterday was it that we might see it break 70 on the downside and that would be spectacular not for the oil uh the oil people but for everyone else Gold has not done much. When you see that green there, be sure to look at the percent. <clears throat> and you see a 0 0.06, a little bit down. That means it's pretty much flat. That's a trivial, it's meaningless. So gold is flat. You've got money that is obviously going into stocks. And over here in the bond market, we were a little bit shaken. Silver's down. Uh, 10-year bond, the yield is down, so the price is up. That means that there are investors buying into uh, the bonds as well as into stocks. So there's money flowing into, uh, it's not spectacular, obviously. It's not yee-haw day, but it is a noticeable movement of capital in. 
the markets were rattled a little bit. Of course, the Federal Reserve, as I have talked about, and I do t- hope you take that lecture to heart and follow it through in the podcast again if it didn't all come uh, get to you in that lecture. But uh, the Federal Reserve is clearly on an inflation-busting uh, tear, and they are going to try to get that uh, inflation under control. And until they do, they're just going to keep signaling the market Don't be waiting for lower interest rates. We are going to keep crunching the money supply down to try to break the back of that inflation. And as you saw in those uh, treasury uh, curves, they're they're not going to mess around much at all. Looking over here, I was a little curious. I showed you one. Well, let me look at London. Yeah, London had a grouchy day. It was not, not terrible, about a half a percent down, a little more than half a percent down. But it just couldn't find a happy zone, although near the end it seemed to have had a little rally. But over in Tokyo, there was some bad news, in the, uh, financial news, in the early hours, and that pumped the price down, uh, price of the Nikkei 225 down, and then it just f- sat there. If there's no good news or bad news, it's not going to go anywhere. It has to be current good or bad news. So once that bad news was absorbed by the market in the early morning in Tokyo, the rest of the day, the market just, no one's going to make a big move if they haven't got any information that, or news that would uh, induce them to do that. You don't buy just because you feel like buying some stock today. These traders are all over the world. They react only to news. They absorb it as fast as they can, and now they've got the, those fast machine learning computers and the pretend AIs, and they're helping with that process of absorbing news and analyzing it. And that's going to be a little bit scary because traders work against each other. You've got bulls and bears, and there's this dynamic tug back and forth, which is actually a healthy thing in any environment for there to be that competition of ideas. AIs don't work that way. They all think the same thing, and they have no remorse about well, my decision is right. And that's going to be a major problem because as those begin to take over, we've already seen a version of that over the last hmm, 10 years or so in what's called trading programs that will follow each other downward. They're machine learning programs. And that could be a major problem in the future is because once they decide something, there's going to be no bull and bear to it. Unless us human beings get in there and fight with them, which won't be very likely. But anyway, enough of that. Let me, uh, I'm going to pull up one that I had talked about on Monday. They got an earnings, earnings coming out in just a few days now, and I'm just curious to see if there's any, nothing on AMC. They're just still sitting there. There's earnings coming out very soon. But everyone's kind of sitting around waiting, you know, what's it going to be? There's no movement uh, of the stock based upon a rumor. It's just kind of sitting there flat right now. Over here, if I'm not mistaken, I was a little bit rattled by one company. Let me look at Walmart. I think they have earnings coming out soon. Wow. That's a little disappointing. Where the hell is... Do you see the earnings on Walmart? 
Oh, let me do that again. WMT. There. Huh, that's odd. They're not showing an earnings chart for it. A couple of other retailers. This is um, uh, retail. This is earnings season coming up here. Targets, not anything spectacular. Notice something about Target here. They have missed their earnings projections rather strongly the last three quarters. And now, of course, the question would be, can we trust them this time, or are they going to miss? They're saying their earnings are going to be about what? 140 a share, 140, they're estimating when it comes out here, well, it comes out like on Monday, it's 27th on Monday, yeah. When it comes out on Monday, are they going to miss their earnings again, or are they going to do it okay? The market seems to be okay with them. It's nothing spectacular. They're a big company, so they're going to follow uh, the, the world market. See that 1.04? Basically, they're going to follow over, on average, the market itself. So the market's up, so they're up. Doesn't seem to be any rumors pushing it one way or the other. And there are other companies, of course, that you can look at, too. I'm not going to look at Tesla. They just, uh, that's kind of... Interesting. Rivian, I want to look at Rivian very quickly. Bad company, no price earnings ratio because it's negative. Their earnings are negative, so they don't report a price earnings ratio. By the way, when I talk like this the day of a quiz, I'm probably telegraphing questions to you. So that might be worth you keeping an eye on that. Well, interestingly, Rivian, oh, quit it. I'm so tired of, really? Rivian is actually has exceeded its earnings estimates for uh, several quarters. So apparently they didn't give estimates back there. But the last quarter, they gave an estimate of earnings. It was negative, but they said it was going to be worse negative than it was. Now they're saying that it's going to be even worse negative, they're estimating. Let's see if they beat their earnings projection. And market doesn't seem to think much of anything about Rivian, so there's that one last one, TGT, just to have something for that's a little more stable. Yeah, that well, I, I just did that one. I'm sorry. Yeah, the uh, Home Depot HD. Looking too much in consumer stuff. They're up strongly. And uh, quarter one, they beat their earnings. So that's why they're up, is they beat their earnings just a little bit. So they don't even have it. They, they've already reported. That must have been a couple of days ago. Yeah, they beat their earnings by a couple of cents. So they're in good shape, and the market is rewarding them by pushing the price up some. But one that really kind of rattled me a little bit, Berkshire Hathaway. This is a company, this is a fully reporting SEC company. And it was really odd seeing Berkshire Hathaway's financials that they submit to the SEC. They were not like what I have seen before. And I went over to Standard Poor's Global Net Advantage to see their ratio analysis and all that. This company is 
its data is not like what you normally would expect to be filed with the SEC. And I don't know what the thing is, but, you know, oh, hey, they're up $4,452 already today. So there you go. There's your damn investment right there. <clears throat> yeah. That's a little bit rattling. Now, yeah, I, I, I recommend Berkshire Hathaway myself. If you're looking for a stock to buy, Burke A's, you can't beat those for long-term earnings, a long-term capital gain. Okay, enough of that. I want to uh, do a little cleanup on a couple of matters. I'm going to write that formula for interest rates here. An interest rate that you would see is going to be a combination of the risk-free rate and the risk premium. Now going into a little more detail on this, the risk-free rate has the nominal rate, uh, I'm sorry, the real rate, which is the supply, the cross, where the supply and demand curves for money cross, and then it has this expected inflation premium. Now, when I say that it includes an expected inflation premium, that means that what I am calculating is a nominal rate. A nominal rate doesn't try to correct for inflation. A nominal rate does not try to correct for inflation. It does not subtract out. Even a real rate, when we say a real rate, that would correct for inflation. But the problem with that is it's correcting for actual inflation instead of expected inflation. So it's not really the real rate, if that makes any sense at all. Now let me stop there for a minute. Our nominal is our real plus the inflation premium. And I'll write that as an IP, the inflation premium. And so in other words, if I told you that the um, real rate is 1.4% and the inflation premium is 2.5%, then the nominal would be 3.9%. Now you can even turn this around. If I know the, uh, I can take the uh, real, the nominal rate minus the inflation premium and get the uh, real rate. But like I said, this is usually based upon some standard measure of actual inflation, not real inflation. And here's the problem there. Even when we're talking about the inflation rate, the inflation rate last, uh, last month was 6.8%. There are actually a bunch of inflation rates that are reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics of the Department of Commerce. And let me go through those. The one that is kind of the most popular is the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. Essentially, at some point, you take a market basket of goods. 
you know, like uh, your milk, your cheese, your bread, your hot sauce, your candy bars, and, uh, and your toilet paper and all those, and your rent and your uh, and um, gas price price of gas, and you put all those into a market basket, you get a price, a total cost of that market basket for some year, and you make that the base year, let's say 2020. And then every year, you measure that same market basket of goods again to see what its price is against the base year or the base month or whatever you want to do. And so the difference would be the inflation rate or the deflation rate, as it were, but that's how you get a, any kind of an inflation rate. There are a couple, then there's one that is called the PPI, the Producer Price Index. Now, the, PP, the PPI measures the price level change of a market basket of wholesale goods. It's sort of like, think of it like a forecaster of the CPI. Well, if we saw an inflation rate of 5% in the PPI, then we would expect that that probably would translate into something like that at the CPI in the coming months. So the producer price index is something that we watch too. Now, before I go any further, though, there's another one up here with the CPI, and that is called the core. The core inflation rate takes out two quite volatile uh, uh, components. And the one of them that is highly volatile is fuel prices. So the core inflation rate doesn't put that gas price into, uh, yeah, I'd be a little bit simplistic, it doesn't put that into the, into the measurement because it goes up and down. As, you're, as you've been seeing, it goes up and down quite nastily. So if you take that out, you get more of a core. And housing prices, it doesn't take into account either because those tend to be kind of volatile as well. So the core measures sort of the underlying, a little bit less volatile, steady inflation rate. And so we pay attention to that too, especially recently because the news reports talk about the CPI. But if you look at the core inflation rate, taking out that volatile fuel sector and the housing sector, you see that the, the core CPI isn't, isn't going up as much now, and it's beginning, to, it's beginning to decelerate. That's what I should say. Okay, now take that all into account. Even beyond those, if you're into the CPI, you want to keep an eye on what's going on. The CPI has some, uh, for lack of a better term, the Consumer Price Index for many years, <coughs> since the 1990s, there's been some playing around with it by the government agency that calculates it and reports it, the Department of Commerce. And so I want to make sure that you understand that these, although the government said, oh, that's old news, no one talks about that, everyone's fine with it, that's not true. 
hardcore financial economists like me say this is, they said it was bullshit when it was started, and it's bullshit today. Here's the problem with how the CPI is calculated. Let's say that the price of computers goes up by 10%. Well, they would say, no, it really didn't go up by 10% because it's better technology now. So we're going to take some of that off that 10% because some of that price rise represented an improved technology. They do the same thing with cars. Cars go up in price. Well, that whole, that entire price increase wasn't uh, inflation. That Some of that was just improved cars. So we wouldn't consider that inflation. Now, there is a reasonableness to it, but there's also a kind of a BS factor to it. There's another one that they play in the CPI. They shave some more off price increases. And this one goes to the core of economics. You may remember in your economics courses that when the price of a good goes up, people substitute away from that good to other goods, right? You remember that, the substitution effect? Well, they say, well, that means that the price going up really didn't have the impact it looks like because people substituted away from that good. And so in other words, the price of uh, milk went up. Well, it didn't go up as much as we think because people substituted away from milk. So we'll shave a little off that price increase we saw because people stopped buying as much milk. And they started buying god-awful things like soy and almond milk. And no, I won't say, I shouldn't say that. Yes, I should. Uh, but that, that's what's going on here. So whenever you see the CPI, you might want to say, take it with a slight grain of salt because there is some manipulation. This has been going on for decades. Like I said, I think it started in the, sometime in the 1990s, they started manipulating, shaving a little off the price increases for technological improvement and for the substitution effect. So inflation that we see with our eyes is probably stronger than what we see with the um, uh, CPI report. And the same is true with the PPI, too. They do that same thing with them. Taking the, that all off the table here, it's not as important in this class, but when I write this right here, this uh, formula for the nom relating the nominal rate to the real rate in inflation. That's actually just an estimate. As far as mathematics goes, and it doesn't really make a lot of difference in lower interest rates. But technically, that's not exactly right. The actual formula is one plus the real rate uh, I'm sorry, 1 plus the nominal rate equals 1 plus the real rate quantity times 1 plus the inflation premium. That's the actual formula, but this one comes out very close to doing it the correct way, at least when interest rates are low.
Let me show you. If I were to do it this way, 1 plus the uh, nominal rate would equal 1 plus, for the example I gave, 0.014 times 1 plus 0.025. That would be technically how you would, and then you would subtract one from both sides. Now let me show you what you get when you do that. Okay, um, open parenthesis, 1 plus 0.014 quantity times 1 plus 0.025, yeah, 5, close the parentheses, and that gets you, and then you subtract 1 from it. So technically, the nominal rate comes out to be 3.94%. It's a four basis point difference between the estimate and the actual. In practice, when we're working, we use these, and you'll use these kinds of things too in some of the formulas later in the course. We just use the cheapo estimate version, and we ignore this Fisher effect, as they call it, version of it. But it's out there, and it also becomes really important. There is a topic in this chapter, and it's the kind of topic where if I show it to you, I'll probably get my car tires slashed. Uh, but it has to do with this. And it, 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 I'm still deciding if I really need new tires or if I'd like to keep the ones that I have. Show but, it. huh? Really? Yeah. Okay, they're going to slash their tires too. <laughs> I, there's, a, there's a crystal ball, and I'm going to go into this in a minute. The yield curve. Now, you remember when I showed you... Um, uh, boy, I, sh if I would remember to bookmark things. Treasury yield curve. Now, um, here it is. The yield curve, all it does, and usually when you say yield curve, you're talking about the treasury yield curve, not corporate bond yield curve or anything like that. All it does is plot the yield against the maturity of treasury instruments. So in other words, it would plot for a three-month, 0.463, right there, 0.463, and then it would plot the next one, 0.483, and it would go out like that, plotting them as they go out in time. Now, let me show you something here. A normal-looking yield curve should behave like this, out from three months to 30 years. And by the way, on this axis, 
they use what's called a log linear so that you don't have to plot three months and 30 years. The numbers get tighter together, the years get tighter together the farther out on the x-axis you go. It just makes it more convenient. But a normal yield curve is upward arching. And the reason it uh, arches upward is because of the maturity premium. You remember the rest of that is the risk premium, the default premium, plus the maturity premium, plus the illiquidity premium. The maturity premium gets bigger the, the longer the time to maturity. It makes that upward sloping. That's normal. It looks nice, and it's healthy. There are other looks that a yield curve can have. There are other ones. One thing is, if the yield curve arches too hard upward, that probably means that there's an inflation premium that is growing. The markets are putting impounding a larger and larger inflation premium in longer and longer instruments. So in other words, that is a healthy yield curve. It arches upward at a nice smooth rate, out from three months to 30 years yields on treasuries. Now the first one, as I had said, if you see a yield curve that is arching really hard upward, that probably, like I said, indicates that traders, buyers, and sellers are putting a harder and harder inflation premium in the longer the maturity of the instrument. In other words, there's an indication of accelerating inflation out into the future. Now, this is the one that uh, there's probably no economist who wants to keep his or her credentials who would say this one is healthy. It's a, a yield curve that looks like that, downward sloping. That is essentially an indication that a deflation is going to happen. And we've seen it. I mean, even in my international finance class, the, uh, I was showing some of these countries that went through banking crises and how that spread around the world over the past oh, 20 or 30 years. But yeah, that's something we want to stay light years away from that. Now, there's one that is important for the time that we are in now and what we've been in for a few years. It's called an inverted yield curve. An inverted yield curve starts out looking normal and then somewhere along the line, yields on longer term instruments go below yields on shorter term instruments. That's called an inverted yield curve. Now, this one's pretty important because an inverted yield curve, every recession has been preceded six to 12 months prior by an inverted yield curve. In other words, you see a, an inverted yield curve, you're going to have a, probably going to have a recession. 
Now, sometimes the curve inverts and all we get is an economic pause, but usually it's a full-blown recession. We, um, the background, the first one would be not really in your time, but we had a crisis, an economic crisis in 2008, in September of 2008, that nearly was the end of the modern financial world. We were within about two hours of the collapse of the financial system. Most people don't know that, but it happened on September 15th. Now, at that time in, and in the years prior to that, I was a writer, um, an economics and finance writer. Uh, had my own website, which was later destroyed by Anonymous because I pissed them off and they wrecked all of my work. But I said, it's, <laughs> it's still in the Wayback Machine, and I can even show you. In the spring of 2008, the yield curve was trying to invert. I'll show you. It was doing this kind of thing. It was arching, and then it was beginning to slide. But it wasn't inverting. It has to invert, even for a day. That's all it takes. If it inverts, that's it. And the thing just kept teasing close. It was in the 7, 10-year uh, time frame. It was trying to invert, but it wouldn't. And I was reporting on it every day. Yield curve still hasn't inverted. And then in June, I said the, I, it did. It inverted, and it inverted for a couple of days, and it recovered. And I said, we got a recession coming. And there were a few other economists who said it too. Most said, no, that's not really an inversion. And everything looks good. Now, the numbers in the 2000, 2001 to 2008 were not good at all. There, it was obvious that there were problems. But anyway, I called on June, in early June, inverted yield curve, recession coming. And... Uh, it was not even, it was a lot worse than I thought it would be uh, in some ways. But on the morning of uh, September 15th, 2008, the, on the East Coast, the banks on the East Coast were reporting massive withdrawals of money market funds. They were just being withdrawn. And the Federal Reserve in Washington was tracking it they couldn't find where it was going. Usually, if money is being pulled out of money market accounts, it's going somewhere. How do you know, how do you know where it's going? You look for a price spike. Is gold going up? Is some commodity going up? Uh, is our stocks in some other country going up? We couldn't see any place it was going. It was just vanishing. By 10 o'clock, $550 million had been withdrawn from the banks on the East Coast at an accelerating rate. They were on the brink of illiquidity. They wouldn't have enough to satisfy demands by normal businesses and people. Fed shut down all withdrawals from money market accounts at 10 a.m. At 12 at noon, they called, a, a joint special session of Congress was called. The doors were locked. And that was the beginning of realizing just how bad it was. And it was grim. That money had vanished. No one knew where it was. And more money, as soon as they unlocked it, whoever was pulling that money out 
was going to start again. And it, if those East Coast banks would have bu had buckled, then as the sun rose across the rest of the country, the banks in the rest of the country would have buckled. And then it would have gone across the Pacific and the Asian banks in Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, South Korea, they would have buckled. It would have been an apocalypse. You couldn't have used your ATM cards because of the, the liquidity would have been gone. Well, we got through it, but anyway, that's how serious an inverted yield curve can get. Now, let me show you a new one. Now, this uh, what's hilarious is that the financial news networks didn't even see this happening until after, well after it had happened. Let me show you. Let me go back here. We're going to go back to 2020, and you, we'll look at the yields going out. Now, I'm doing this in this way because it's visually it helps you understand it a lot better than if I just give you abstractions. Now, go, apply. Okay, so now, look at 2020. Yeah, four months, there wasn't any. Do you see that there was a little tiny fart of an inversion right there? First of all, right here, do you see how there was a flat, uh, there was a flat place on January the 6th of 2020, and then there was a technical inversion. You see how this rate on this one year was just one basis point below the rate on the two year. Technically, that means that there was a recession going to come. It has to do it only once, but then by the next day it had recovered, and you see how it, everything was la-la, everything was fine. Do you see how it was upward arching all through here, going down to here, upward arching, and then in later January, it got serious. Do you see the inversion? Look, 1.58, uh, 1.53, 1 1.45, that was a two-level inversion. Right there, we, we knew that there was going to be a recession. Right there. And we did have one, but it was a mild one because this inversion. Let me go out here to 2021, and then you're going to see the yeehaw apply. Let's just go out here somewhere. Do you see how the Fed was just clamp making, printing money like there was no tomorrow as a, in 2021? They were trying to keep a recession from happening. Do you see? And sure enough, you had a nice-looking nice yield curve. You know, upward arching, yields later, higher than yields, maturity premium building, just like it's supposed to in normal economic times. And then it started to get a little bit more serious out here. If I'm, Am I looking at the right year or... I don't know if I'm even looking at the right year. Uh, maybe I'm, am I looking at 21 or 22? Or 20 or 21? Yeah, I'm looking at 21 here instead of 22. Okay, let's look here. Get, let me get down here, see if the inversion happened in here somewhere. Nope, it didn't. So I can go out here to 2022, and I think we have an inversion out here, but I'm not sure. Let me check. No, we've still got it okay. 
Yeah, it's still okay. Well, that's a relief. Do you see how I'm looking at this and I'm not seeing an inversion of the yield curve out here? Let me go down a little further. There it is. I th yeah, I should have remembered that it was in the summer. Do you see it? Look at this one right here. It begins, it starts out normal, and then it dips, and then it drops harder and harder and harder. So in August of last year, the yield curve was inverting like a mother. And that means that you should be expecting a recession coming in its wake. That's why we are so worried right now, is even though we see good numbers in employment, manufacturing, consumer confidence, uh, there's still, that is an inverted yield curve. And it's warning us that six to, nine, six to 12 months after one of those, there can very well be a recession. Historically, it's, it's worked that way. That's why we're concerned, even with these good numbers, that something bad is coming. And is it? I hate to say I'm a bull, but I'm, I sure as hell hope for your sake this is not real. But, I mean, that's, uh, look here, let me, <coughs> let me bring it out to here. Son of a bitch, look at that. You know, I'm sorry, forgive my French. Do you see that? Look at that inversion. That is a, that's not just maturity at seven years and then 10 years. No, this one is a multi-period inversion of the yield curve. And that is a clarion call that we've got a recession coming. It's even, well, kiss my butt. Let me look out here in 2023. Let's see if it has come back to normal. Okay, apply. Nope. Look at that. You see it? It starts its inversion from the six months of the one year and two year, three year, five year, seven year, ten year, all the way out there, it's inverted. It's sort of like you get up in the morning, you feel good, and I mean, everything's fine, but every time you look in the mirror, you see this xenomorph popping out of your mouth. Hi! Yeah, uh, we don't know how to take this one. This might be something where the first time in history, well, we hope it is, that we had a massively inverted yield curve, but it did not lead to a recession. I don't know if I want to bet the money on that, but I do have a couple of extra couches in my house, so if you need a place to crash, if you can't find a job in the Depression, I don't charge much for rent, but don't bother my cats. They're not friendly to strangers. Unless you bring them cat offerings like snackies. But anyway, you got a uh, quiz coming up here, so why don't you crank that out now? And other than that, that's all I have for you today. I thank you.